0: Um, Elder Fisher and uh, Ryan Consey have handouts if you need one, just want to throw your hand up, something to write on, they can pass those out. Uh, and as I was preparing for this, uh, there was a lot of reading, there was a lot of listening, there was a lot of studying, and the past week I was wondering, you know, just keep your hand up if you want paper, don't get tired. Um, this past week I was wondering where this would go, what we would cover. Genesis is a humongous book, or as my son likes to say, humormous book. And I wasn't really sure what shape it would take, uh, how to unify some of the themes. So the very first thing I did on Monday is I just sat in my office, or I might have even been outside here at the church, and I just preached a sermon. So it was everything I could think of, beginning with Genesis, and just trying to see what what spilled out, what fell out of me from everything that I've been reading and studying. Well, it was about a 57-minute sermon. That wasn't any good. So I tried it again, and it got longer, it was about an hour and ten minutes. Uh, so unfortunately, I had to contain myself in some notes. Uh, I don't like that, and I'm a little frustrated that I've had to do it. But there is so much to cover in Genesis, I can't simply tell you everything that we are that comes to mind as we mark through it. There's just too much. There's too much that comes to mind. So we are going to be confined, unfortunately, to some of the notes that I've taken here, uh, which means I might also confine myself to this tiny pulpit but to begin let's go to genesis chapter 50 and again if you would like a handout did all of them get passed out making more okay i'll let you know when more come in and you can throw your hand back up uh in the meantime let's look at genesis chapter 50 we're going to read the very end of genesis hopefully you notice that our liturgy almost the entire thing was grounded in the book of genesis we are going to read Genesis 50 beginning at verse 15 through the end of the chapter and of the book. Let us attend to the reading of God's holy word, Genesis 50 beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about, many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin this morning, uh, there are a few things to keep in mind. The first is that the majority of the Bible is told in story form, as a narrative. And specifically to the book of Genesis, we get this concentrated group of narratives small stories. Imagine the, uh, the orange juice that you buy at the store that's frozen, really packed in. You've got to add all the water to it to actually get real orange juice. Concentrated stories, small stories packed together in this this one book and then as we will see with the book of exodus we move into more of a longer drawn out story that continues throughout the wilderness and then the kings we get long sometimes we get short and then of course the prophets are all sprinkled in among the kings genesis comes to us the bible comes to us genesis serves as kind of a microcosm of this as a story as stories Genesis is the foundation for the stories of the Bible. The question, my favorite question to ask, is why? Why are we given stories? Why at the beginning are we given so many stories? And why does the Bible continue to pour itself out in story or narrative form? I think the best answer to that, that I've discovered, uncovered, is that narratives, narratives form the basis or the foundation for morality. Stories are how we have an ethic. If you've been paying attention to some of the recent arguments, debates that you can find on podcasts and on YouTube, there's an interesting debate going on between atheists, new atheists, and then those of the more Judeo-Christian persuasion about how do we know what is right and what is wrong, or how do we derive morality? How do we know what our ethic should be? How can we say what is right and what is wrong? Now, what's interesting, at least as far as I can tell, about the new atheists is that it seems that they've rejected the idea of moral relativism, that you can just decide or create whatever you want to be right or wrong and just call it right or wrong. The new atheists, while rejecting that, and that's good, uh, they believe, as far as I can tell, that you actually derive, or you can derive, your morality or your ethics from facts. That's not supposed to happen. From from some type of empirical evidence. So things actually you can look at, you can study. In other words, they believe you can derive morality or an ethical code from science. Some type of factual world. You look at the empirical evidence, and that will indicate how you're supposed to live. Whereas the Judeo-Christian worldview, and there are many who are proponents of the Judeo-Christian worldview who are not necessarily Christians, but they have argued that it is in stories or in narratives that form a culture that that culture, and therefore the individuals of that culture, begin to understand what is right and what is wrong. So narratives form the foundation for how you understand the basic question, right? How should I live in this world? How do I act? What do I do? What do I choose not to do? Well, the answer is found in stories. Narratives give the most weight, I think, to the argument. And they, the narratives that you know, the narratives that you've memorized, the stories that you understand, they will shape your ethical code. Now, this may sound great as we start studying the Bible and reading stories in Genesis, but this also means something a little more dangerous. If the stories that you know the best are Friends, Seinfeld, or The Office, what that means is the stories that you know the best, the stories that you listen to and read and watch or hear over and over and over, your morality will look like the morality of Friends or Seinfeld or The Office. The narratives that are part of your being, the narratives that make up your life, will dictate how you live. They will be the origin or the foundation for what you think is right or wrong. Culture tells stories. And the stories that culture tells through cinema, TV, songs, writings, the stories that a culture tells, and then the stories that the culture listens to, those are the stories that shape morality, or your ethical code. So if the, I guess I mean this literally now, the stories you follow are people through Instagram, or sports and athletes, or musicians and movies, your ethics will begin to line up with their ethics. Everything has an ethical code. Music, even the trash they play on the radio, it is telling you a story about what is important, about what matters, about what is right, about what is wrong, about a certain type of lifestyle. TV, movies, novels, books, they all tell stories about what matters and how you should live in the face of what they're preaching and selling matters. So your ethical framework, your morality, will be conceived, in a sense, by these narratives. Again, the Bible therefore comes to us in stories to teach us how to live, to give us a sense for how we should exist in this world, how we should make decisions. Our morality, our ethical code, it will begin to line up if we embody, if we know these stories. Another way to say this, these stories, these narratives, they provide a map for our lives. Now, we have to make a distinction or a nuance here that I think is very important. It's a temptation, culturally, maybe it's just a western, southern thing, that when we look at people, we generally immediately are trying to find out, is this a good guy, or is this a bad guy? It can be very simplistic. We're trying to understand people as either good or bad, or saved or unsaved, or Christian or unchristian, however you want to phrase it, good or bad, saved or unsaved. The Bible does not give us, specifically Genesis, specifically Genesis, does not give us commentary on who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. It's very interesting. A book that is so much narration doesn't, the, the narrator doesn't come in and say, oh, and by the way, that's a bad guy. Or Cain, the bad guy. You'll notice that, that um, John does this, and the Gospel writers do this with Judas, right? As you're reading, every time Judas' name is mentioned, you come upon him in the text, and it says, oh yeah, the one who betrayed Jesus. And you're like, okay, I know what I think about that guy. Okay? Genesis doesn't do that. Genesis doesn't give us these clean categories that say this is a bad guy, this is a good guy. Rather, what we encounter in Genesis... We encounter actions, decisions, and the consequences of those actions and decisions as they play out over the course of someone's entire life. We see choices, and then we get to watch. Where did that choice lead? Does good come of it? Does bad come of it? How did they respond to the circumstance in their life? Or, in other words, getting to the actual text of Genesis, we encounter people who are both... Cain and Abel. Now, there, there is a prevalent sentiment to find fault with the patriarchs it's everywhere. Pick up a, a children's Bible book and you'll see patriarchs condemned right and left for their actions. Patriarchs, matriarchs are criticized, they're labeled as bad, as good, as unsaved, as believing, unbelieving. And I just want to give you two examples of how this is done because it's, it's perhaps the most clear in terms of popular treatments with Jacob and Joseph. Jacob is immediately, pick up most commentaries, Jacob is immediately called a deceiver, a liar, a cheat. The Bible doesn't actually call him that. His name doesn't have those ethical connotations. They have more gardening, supplanting connotations. And as you dig through some of the more Jewish scholarship, what you find is that Jacob is actually held up as clever, as the hero all the way through, who against all odds, cleverly and cunningly obtains the promises of God. He is celebrated similarly to the way Loki is celebrated in Norse mythology. He's a trickster. Or the way Odysseus is celebrated in the Greek stories. His greatest weapon is his mind. And he's championed in the Bible for outwitting his enemies. Now you see, this is a little more... This is a little more difficult to prove, but you see the same type of degradation with Joseph. He's given this coat of many colors. He has these dreams where he rises up and his family bows to him, and then he tattletales on his brothers like a snitch. So we label him as arrogant and well, a tattletale, a snitch. However, what this coat signifies is not that he was given the best birthday present, but rather clothing is a sign that his father trusted his character. So he's essentially, much like Jacob, placed in charge of the family business. So in other words, he's the boss. It's a uniform. It's like a Tom Ford two-piece. He is duty-bound to report back to the boss, to Jacob, if the work, if the business isn't going well. If his employees, his brothers, aren't doing what they should do. That's not snitching. That's called responsibility. And as to his dreams we should notice that he has two of them where the same thing happens. This was believed, and is still believed by many who study and write about the phenomenology of dreams, that a repeat dream is a signal from God, or your unconscious, that you should be paying attention to. Jews believed that a repeated dream is a message from God, so of course Joseph should be telling his family because they should want to know what God is saying. Because the same dream happened twice. And yet, of course, they are just envious and frustrated. So again, those as just common examples, you need to forget the misnomer that we're out to find good guys or bad guys, saved or unsaved. Genesis comes to us to map out potential scenarios we could face and then show us decisions and choices that were made and how those decisions and choices pan out and either bring glory to God and blessing or curses. How do the bad consequences manifest themselves in those decisions? Well, to begin, let's actually begin in the beginning. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Again, this was part of our liturgy, but we will read it again. Genesis 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One other thing, one other thing to keep in mind is that the Hebrew word there, Bereshit, in the beginning, that marks out Genesis as the beginning of beginnings. It is the book of beginnings. You could perhaps play a little game in your mind and think what are the things that begin in Genesis? It's the beginning of the world, it's the beginning of human culture, it's the beginning of sin beginning of redemption, beginning of work, beginning of marriage, beginning of music, the beginning of cities, the beginning of war, the beginning of death, the beginning of God's covenantal dealings with man. Everything begins here in this book. Also, keep in mind, if you know the way the Joseph story ends and the passage we just read, as well as Noah, the book is contained, or you could say broken up into potentially either two or three major water events. We have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters at the beginning. We have Noah, happens to be a little bit of water in the story of Noah. We actually have too much water in the story of Noah. And then how do we end in Joseph? We don't have enough water. There isn't water and people have to come to Egypt to get their grain and their water. So there are these literary inclusios, we call them, these big kind of bookends. We have water at the beginning, this great water event, and even like the recreation of the whole world with Noah. All the animals are covenanted with, much like Adam. And then you have not enough water at the very end of the book. Now, if you also just sketch the patriarchs, there's a contrast that's offered up. Again, if we're paying attention to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it's very interesting. We talk about you know, the patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's always listed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as the story runs, you really get the story of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. That's where all the ink is. Isaac has a very, very small amount compared to those three. And if you notice the way Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those stories are written versus how the Joseph story is written, there's some very interesting contrasts. First, the patriarchs, they're always like seeing God, like literally seeing God. Hearing God, he's speaking with them, sending messengers, eating with God's messengers. There is this direct revelation of God to their senses that they experience. However, with Joseph and then with Judah, they never hear or see God or his messengers or angels or voices. There's not calling and interpretation or visions or ladders or signs. Rather, God works in a hidden way. The, the focus, as we move from Abraham all the way to Joseph, the focus zeros in on the responses that god 's people make to the circumstances in front of them. I'll say that again the focus at the end of Genesis, and then throughout the Bible, I think you can make an argument the focus zeros in on the responses that god 's people make to the circumstances that they find themselves in. What are the decisions made in this or that context, with this or that tragedy or sin or malevolence, whatever it is. Now, also notice with the patriarchs, the patriarchal story, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you pay attention to the geography, the geography of those stories, it's Canaan and Mesopotamia, that area. But where does the Joseph, Judah story take place? In Egypt. Whereas before, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The story is focused on altars and worship and land and attaining bits and pieces here and there. With Joseph, not altars, not specific land is mentioned. Rather, the story at the very end of Genesis, the story is played out on the field of the world itself. Genesis goes global in chapter 37. It's no longer one family. It's no longer one land. It's no longer one place or one people. But literally the world is coming to Joseph for salvation. We've moved to Egypt. The stage is the world. The stage is the nations. And that movement, that that trajectory, is the foundation for the entire story of the Bible itself. God's promise of land extends beyond just some small tract of land. The whole world is the possession of... Of his people, So there is foreshadowing in the book of Genesis as to how this whole story will play out. A Jew ruling the world and, and just Jews coming to him for salvation? No. All nations coming to the one for life and for salvation. Now, the other thing that we have to address is that Genesis is the beginning of humanity. If you want to go to Genesis chapter 4... We read this as part of our call to confession, but I think it is worth reading again. With Genesis, we have, again, we're four chapters in, and immediately we have the beginning of humanity. And when I say the beginning of humanity, I mean the first humans that we would be a part of, Cain and Abel. Or you could say the first humans with belly buttons, right? Or however that argument goes. The first people, Cain and Abel are the first people, they're the first humans that live, that are alive, in the same way that all of us are alive in a fallen world, and born of ordinary generation. And this story, I would argue, sets the table or introduces the themes that will continue throughout the rest of this book and the rest rest of the Bible. So, Genesis chapter 4, let's read verses 1 through 7 again. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Now, at the beginning of the story, much has been made about why God doesn't accept Cain's offering and why he accepts Abel's offering. Was it the wrong kind of offering? Is it because it didn't have blood? Well grain offerings were commanded and allowed in the book of Leviticus and throughout God's people's history. So that doesn't seem to work. Well, uh, is it the wrong attitude? Is it a heart issue? Well, the text doesn't say that it was a heart issue. We just read that Abel brought this, Cain brought that, God said, good job, Abel, and said, Cain, no, no, not at all. I happen to think that the text is purposefully ambiguous because rather than focusing on what went wrong, we are almost just supposed to know... Cain got rejected. Things aren't going well for Cain. Because I think this is more akin to our own experience. We don't always know why things are going wrong in our lives. What do we know? That they are going wrong. That's much easier to recognize than the why. Cain simply doesn't get along very well with God. The things he does, the things he tries, they don't work. He fails. He makes mistakes over and over again. Everything he touches turns to dirt. He he just doesn't... Charlie Brown, right? He doesn't have success. He has struggles and complications and rejections everywhere he turns. That's the point. He hasn't figured out how to live life. He's not aligning himself accordingly, the way he should, with reality. He's not getting along with God. Whereas Abel, he is this ideal. God approves... what he does. Again, we're not told why, but everything he touches turns to gold. He's a smashing success. He's probably also a pretty nice guy, pretty kind, which would make it that much more annoying. So Abel is this ideal person, the person that you admire, the person that you want to be like, because not only do things go well for him, but he's kind, he's capable, he's respectful. Abel, according to Cain, has easy. Cain's miserable, frustrated. And God comes to Cain. And God essentially says to Cain that, Cain, why you're suffering isn't my fault. Essentially what God says. God says, it's not my fault, Cain. It's your fault. And you have the ability to master it. What are you going to choose? Now, on the whole, uh, when things are not going well for someone, when they're having a hard time of it in life, uh, that's the last thing that people want to hear, is that it's your fault. That doesn't go over very well that you are the reason why your life's kind of a mess. People don't like to hear that. Most people want, I often want, to hear that it's someone else's fault or it's circumstances. We would prefer to be the victim of all the misfortune that we bring upon ourselves. You want to be innocent of all the drama in your life. The idea that you are the reason for your own misery, well, rarely, if ever, is that a pill someone swallows. But God then follows that up by saying, come on, Cain, you know you could do it. You can master it. If you do well, you will be accepted. If you don't, you know what's coming. Cain's face falls. Verse seven. I want to read that again. The very end of verse seven. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Uh, the concept there, expressed in the word desire, is actually a sexual metaphor. And the idea is that this thing is crouching at the door, and it brings with it a sexually charged, or it is a sexually charged or aroused predator. That's why it's crouching. Now, what's important about retaining the sexual connotation with the word is that sin doesn't just want to destroy you. It's not only a hungry predator. Predators are generally hungry. It's not only a predator... But sin, sin wants to procreate with you. This is why the word toledot is on your handout. The Hebrew word for generations, so important, littered all over the book of Genesis. We read of the generations of the heaven and the earth in 2.4, the generations of Noah, the generations of Abraham, the generations of Isaac, the generations of Jacob. Those are all those lists of names no one can pronounce. But sin, as seen here in Genesis 4, sin is seeking to create generations as well. Evil, resentment, vengeance, bitterness, rage, envy. They want to mate with you in order to produce offspring of their kind. The word that is actually used is the word teshuka, is the Hebrew word used here in the Cain and Abel story for this desire that this crouching predator has what's fascinating, the only other place it's used in the entire Bible that I could find, one other place. Song of Solomon, 7.10. It's a procreating event between the husband and his wife. Cain is presented with a choice. He must decide how he will act. How will he respond to both his present circumstances and his own failures? This is key to Genesis. How will we live? How will we choose to respond to the suffering? How will we choose to respond to the unfairness of life? How will we choose to respond to these circumstances that seem to be mine and mine alone and no one else's? As you look at the stories in Genesis, you see that Cain is actually set in direct opposition to Joseph. Because Joseph encounters completely unfair circumstances, many of them in a row... And how did he respond? He's sold into slavery, and somehow he's put in charge of Potiphar's estate, his entire company. Then he's thrown unjustly into prison, and Potiphar knew that his wife was a sexual deviant. The, the accusation that Potiphar's wife makes on Joseph, that was immediate death. So the fact that Joseph doesn't die is indication that Potiphar knew the real story, but he had to do something to punish Joseph, so he unjustly throws him into prison. And while he's in prison, he becomes the master of the prison. That doesn't happen by accident. If he was a a brooding, reclusive, angry teenager who never ventured to take his headphones off or to talk to anyone outside of his little cell, well, no one puts that person in charge of a prison. But eventually, he's put in charge of Egypt and the world. But again, the question that sits before us is the same question that sits before Cain. Will you procreate with evil or will you procreate with righteousness? Because you see, especially because we know what Cain's decision was, you see the immediate effects of Cain's choice to procreate with sin. In the book of Genesis, think about the, the, the shape of it. Genesis begins with humanity, the humanity that's like us, one on one, mano y mano, brother on brother. But how does Genesis end? Well, it's 11 on one. Eleven of Joseph's brothers versus Joseph. And when we get to the Gospels, it's an entire nation. The leaders of Israel, the brothers of Christ, as well as the world represented in the Romans versus Jesus. Evil has procreated. The generations of evil are abundant. We are constantly threatened by sexually aroused sin that wants to produce more of itself. The question that came to Cain comes to us. It's the same question that sat before Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Jesus. How will we respond? What will our generations be? Well, our generations will be the product of our choices, our actions. Now there's another way to phrase the same theme and that is looking at the word build. Uh, this would be too long if I gave you every single text. Go to a concordance search. Look at how many times the word built or build is used in Genesis because this is another way of making the same point. It's the language of building. You, I could ask the question, what will you build? Uh, go to Genesis 2.7. We'll look there quickly. It's an interesting note in the creation of Adam and Eve Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So Adam, man, is formed from the ground. Go to verse 22. So it's not good the man's alone. You remember that. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man... He made, and perhaps your Bible has a little footnote number there. The word is actually more literally built. He built into a woman and brought her to the man. So man is formed, okay, and woman is built or fashioned. So God built the woman. It's a different verb. It's a unique verb compared to what he did to create the man. You could say it this way. A woman is a work of art. She's an architectural feat. She is built whereas it's been said that Adam is an artifact. Man is an artifact. Eve is a work of art. Women are works of art. Men are artifacts. Um, Adam actually comes from the word adamah, which means dirt. So you could say that men are dirt bags, and you would not be far off at all. Whereas a woman, according to Genesis 2.22, a woman is built, she is constructed, she is worked on, she is fashioned. Now what's fascinating is that that word used in Genesis 2.22... That word is used 14 more times, according to my count, in the book of Genesis. Seven times it's used for building good and righteous things. And seven times it's used for building wicked things. So bad pagan cities are built. Unfaithful dynasties are built. Or even in the case with Sarah and Hagar, Sarah says, build our family from Hagar. Hagar. Rachel and Leah say to Jacob, go into my concubine and I will build a name out of her. So seven times the word build is used for bad, unfaithful building, and seven times building an altar or building a city or building a family in order to worship God, building for good. And because, because men choose to mate with evil, because they give into the sexually aroused predator, or because they decide to build unfaithful cities or unfaithful families, what do we see throughout Genesis? God has to step in and deliver. And God's redemption is symbolized by righteous procreation or righteous building. Which also, righteous building sometimes necessitates a righteous tearing down before the building can begin. Very similar to the themes in Jeremiah of tearing down and planting. Those themes you can find in Genesis and Jeremiah. God has to step in and deliver and build good and build righteous. And then Seth is born. Jacob receives the blessing. Joseph realizes that what men meant for evil, God used for good. And this building that takes place in Genesis, this procreating with righteousness, the generations of righteousness are according to faith and not sight. Sight, specifically in Genesis, but also in the Bible, sight is often linked with sin in the sense that if you live and you mate and you procreate with what you can see, with what makes sense, you're going to produce and create more wrong. That's what Abraham did with Hagar. It made sense. She looks like she can have a baby. She's not 90. That's probably the way to go. Living by sight, procreating, not according to the promise. Backing up, in Genesis, we're presented with a map of life. We're presented with a map of our lives, with all manner of potential scenarios and difficulties and challenges and situations. And you may ask, you may ask the question, you may wonder. You may rage and curse and frustration and anger. Why do I encounter these obstacles? Why do I keep getting into jams? Why do I keep having problems? Why does tragedy fall? Why does malevolence assault? Why is my life full of suffering and trouble? At least two answers. Because you're doing something wrong, So change, sacrifice the right thing. Or secondly, so that God can show you that you need his deliverance. So that you can learn to depend upon a God who procreates in righteousness. So that you will see your need in God's God's decisions for salvation. Genesis is an example of of much that we might encounter, of much that we do encounter, and of where right responses get us and where wrong responses get us. Just think about how modern the situations in Genesis are. Husbands abandoning or abdicating their role and leaving their wives to fight their battles, as we see with Adam and Eve. Improper sacrifice and brothers hating one another. Cain and Abel. Floods, so we have calamity or tragedy and natural disasters. We prayed for Michelle de Leon today because of those very things. We encounter in the Bible those who try to make a name for themselves, those who try to protect themselves against what God might do in the city of Babel. We encounter in Genesis conflict with nephews, Abraham and Lot. We encounter barrenness. We encounter the death of spouses. Abraham and Jacob. Like Jacob, we wrestle with fathers, we wrestle with brothers, and we even find ourselves wrestling with shadows in the dark. We encounter spiritually blind and prejudiced fathers in Isaac. We encounter brothers who hate us and want to kill us in Esau, Joseph and his brothers. We encounter corrupt princes, as in Judah with Tamar. Deceitful in-laws with Laban. Unfair And unjust circumstances, things going wrong over and over again, even though we're trying to do things right, like Joseph. The question How will you respond to these ravenous, sexually charged threats? How will you respond to the evil that wants to reproduce? How will you respond to sickness and death and tragedy? How will you respond to malevolence, to evil? How will you respond to your own failure? Will you resist? Will you choose to master it? Or will you give in to the sin that desires you? Life is filled with suffering and tragedy, malevolence and evil, and choice.